Catherine, Catherine. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. I have you on speakerphone. Oh, okay. Because I wanted to hear from you directly without any prompt how you liked your purple bed mattress. I love it. It is extraordinary. Alfred asked me today, how would I compare it? And I would say it's the best mattress I've ever slept on. Every mattress you've ever had, the purple mattress is the best one. The purple mattress is the best out of all of the mattresses that I've ever slept on. Uh, I don't necessarily mean that I own that mattress that I slept on because I could have been in like a hotel or whatever. But out of all of the mattresses that I have slept, on. Wow. That's huge to say. What makes it better? It's just, it feels better. It it gives with your body without losing its firmness. And I think the different construction is just really good. It's just a great experience. And do you have the the duvet and the sheets and, and the pillows on it now? Are you using a mixture? No. Right now I have on the purple mattress the purple pillows, the purple mattress cover, the sheets, and the duvet. Mm, Okay, and you're saying this is better than any hotel bed or anything you've tried. I have got to try this. And as you know, we've been in some extraordinary hotels. That's right. I mean, we've been in hotels where their brag is, do you want to buy the bed that you slept in? Because, you know, and they have been comfortable, but... I still say that this is better. Okay. If you had to describe sleeping on this bed in just one sentence or so, what would you say? I think I'd say what I said before, which was that it was uh, like sleeping on a cloud. I don't know what a cloud feels like, but that's what I would imagine. (laughs) And at the same time, speaking about the duvet, I don't remember why, but at some point I wanted this down comforter. And I wanted it for a while, and I don't know if I ever got it or not, but I know that putting this on last night, it was wonderful. It gives you some type of ventilation. It doesn't make you hot. It sort of allows the air to just flow. So it's, it's not, you don't feel like you're being suffocated or cramped in. It just feels like it's just something on top of you. My name is Earlene Butler Sims. I'm Arlen Hamilton's mother, and I am a now and forever purple customer. I mean, I told y'all, <laughs> mom, my mom loves this company, okay? Purple.com slash Arlen. That's A-R-L-A-N. You have to check it out. They have some new items up. It's not all just betting anymore. You're going to want to check it out. Purple.com slash Arlen. You know I love me some purple. Now I'm partnered with purple. We're going to keep up with <laughs> with Mrs. Sims and uh, keep up with what she's into. She gives it to us straight. You know she does. You know how my mom is. She's going to give it to us straight. And uh, she is loving, loving her purple gear. All right. Check it out. I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund, Backstage Capital, from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. 
After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hey there, darling. It's good to see you again. Thanks for coming back. This episode is an interview with Swati Malavarapu. I've known her for something like four years, I think. She was an early, early investor in Backstage and has a really interesting, compelling story, backstory, and what she's working on right now. So I'm so excited to bring this to you, as I always am. As I mentioned before, as we uh, started this new year of podcast episodes, because celebrated a year on June 8th, 2020, I mentioned in that episode that I get pitched a lot of interviews, but I don't take them all. I don't just take an interview because someone has made a million dollars. I am very much so curating and I want to be interested in the subject. I want to be excited by it. And most of all, I want to be helpful in sharing that story with this audience. So Swati's interview has been something I've wanted to do for quite a while. And it's good. It's like, it's packed. It's, you can't just cover it all in, uh, in the amount of time that we had, but we covered quite a bit of ground. You want to stick around, especially if, um, well, not especially, but if you have any interest in, in getting into politics at all, there's some interesting conversation towards the end about that, how you can do that. And uh, yeah, check it out. You got to check it out. The last few days have been exhausting for everybody and we get to talk about why we do the work that we do and what we hope for in the future. I think you're going to like it. I always do and I always hope you do. As always, let me know. Come back at me. Arlen was here. A-R-L-A-N was here on Instagram, on Twitter. Let me know you're listening. Let me know what you like about the interviews. Go back and check out an interview that you haven't heard yet from this podcast series. Every episode is is fire, as the kids say. Yeah, that's what that's what we're gonna do. Woo! Let's go. All right, we're here with Swati Malavarapu. Am I saying that anywhere close to how you like to hear it? Yeah, you got it. Okay, I love the name. I've practiced it and uh, I've known you for how, like four years now. Man, it's been a minute. Yeah, you were early, early investor in Backstage. I remember. Early investor, like top, like first 10 or something. I yep, proud of that fact. That's crazy. And I knew the minute you walked into my office and told me what you were working on, I was like, okay, we've got to figure out a way to be supportive around this. Can you can you tell me about that a little bit? Because we're going to go into your story and, and talk all about what you're doing, but that is kind of one of the rare occasions where I walked into an office and the person already got it before I even pitched it. You know what I mean? Like it was took one conversation. What was it about it at that point? I mean, you're in VC deeply into VC at this point when we're, when we're having the conversation. So I think being the picture kind of helps make 
makes the point of just how powerful and, and well-positioned the ask and, and, and what you were working on um, was. So I was working in a storied Sand Hill Road-based venture firm that had been around for decades. I had a corner office. Um, there was wood paneling. When you walked in through those doors, there were receptionists. Um, I was, you know, an outlier to, to the broader industry. I, I was sort of young, brown, female. I'd also recently come out of working inside of companies to the venture investing ecosystem. And by the time you came in to talk about backstage, I'd had about a year's worth of experience on the investing side of things under my belt. And just so many lived experiences of a lot of the unspoken power asymmetries and uh, sort of disadvantages and structural challenges that anybody that didn't look like the industry's norm faced working in it, much less the entrepreneurs that walked into those doors pitching it. I'd been in a lot of those pitch meetings to understand the structural challenges that people who looked like me faced when they came in to make the simple ask of whether or not their business was worth capitalizing. Uh, And so lived it, identified with it because of who I am and the life experiences that I brought to the table in that work. And when you came in and said, listen, I think the best way to solve this, uh, or at least to help address it, is to use the same approach and model, but be really intentional. So let's start a venture fund that's intentionally focused on founders and businesses that come from communities like ours. And I, I got it completely because I, you know, I think at that point, the venture industry was debating and talking about all kinds of other surface level fixes, like checking the box and hiring a female partner into partner sets. Look, unconscious bias training was all the rage. If we just put people through trainings, that'll solve the problem. But there weren't any, I don't think anything went far enough or focused on systemic change. And so this idea was so radical in its simplicity that we'll do the same thing that a venture fund does. We'll be a venture fund, but we'll have values at the outset that focus very intentionally on making sure that we're meeting an unaddressed need for founders of color and the amazing businesses that they're building. Yeah. And you're super compelling, Arlen. I mean... (laughs) Todd, you had, you walked in with chutzpah. You were wearing a sweatshirt. You came into that super formal office and you're like, look, this is what it is. I've never done this before, but I'm going to do it. And I was like, okay, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, we could, we could do an entire hour just based on those experiences I had before that conversation and, you know, around that time. And they were not like that. It was, it was not that easy to, to get to the heart of the matter. Did you find yourself having to convince people that there was a problem that needed to be fixed at the outset or like? 100%. Hmm. Number one thing I was told by people in one way or another was, I can believe that, you know, thank, thanks. You know, I can believe that it is, you know, because I don't have that in my portfolio, but why have it be this structured fund that's only for that? Why not just, I'll just say I'll, I'll invest in more people, bring me more people to invest in. And I, I had to explain that there were a couple of things there, like it, it needed to be bold. It needed to be like almost offensive to some people. It needed to get their attention in a way that it hadn't worked, before, it hadn't happened before because the old stuff wasn't working. Yep. The second part of that was I wasn't just calling out the fact that there weren't enough people in the portfolio that looked and were had the background, the lived experiences outside of theirs. But I was saying that the people writing checks 
and have the ability to write these checks and, and really write checks, not just be, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of money. I'm going to give you a little title and you can do that. I mean, really like partners and, yeah. and, and principals, you know, can write these checks. They were not necessarily going to have the same conversation that I would have right. with Sheena Allen. Because she, she has said that, you know, she has said, Tina Allen runs Capway, which is a, a company we've invested in that now has been invested in by uh, Alexis Ohanian and, and uh, initialized and is going on to do amazing things. But they work with the underbanked and the unbanked. And she had said she had spent time on Sand Hill Road, literally going door to door, asking them to talk. And they were saying, there's no way someone puts their money in a mattress. They don't understand the problem statement. They don't understand sort of the market opportunity because it's so far removed from the average lived experience that's yeah. represented on Sandra. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit, Swati, because you you represent a lot of things to me because you do have wealth. Mm-hmm. And I want to know a little bit more about where where it started. Like where, what do you think of as like your origin story? And then where did wealth come into play here, if that makes sense? Like, because to me, it feels like you have that deeply rooted understanding of what it's like not to have money or at least, you know, to be able to observe it. And then you have money. Let's talk a little bit like through that journey. Sure. So, I mean, I think at at a high level, the wealth creation in my life story was relatively unexpected. And I think that's important to note. So I... Grew up in a pretty poor part of Florida, North Central Florida, um, which is literally where the pan meets the handle of the state in a town called Gainesville, which is a university town. So relatively progressive, but in a pretty conservative part of the American Southeast. It's a part of the country that feels more like South Georgia than it does South Florida, Mm. um, if that makes sense to some folks that are listening. I grew up the child of immigrants. You know, my parents were relatively well-educated and were able to provide a comfortable lower middle-class, middle-class upbringing to my sister and I. But, you know, like, product of public education. Thank God for that great equalizing force in America and worked really hard, studied really hard, always felt like I was an outsized nerd in high school, but I was matched by this one other outsized nerd who ended up becoming my husband. Um, (laughs) And like Matt and I went to prom together, but we were so nerdy growing up that we didn't believe in dating. Wait, you've you've known your husband since high school? Oh, yeah. Since the 11th grade, since middle school, actually. I I didn't know that after four years. Had no idea. (laughs) It's like layers, Arlen. There's so many funny things about why I do this podcast. Um, So, I mean, that was my upbringing. And it was also significant to grow up in a part of the country where you saw tremendous economic disparities that cleaved oftentimes on really stark racial lines. You can imagine what it was like having a name with 20 letters and 10 syllables growing up in that part of the the country. You know, the way that my classmates would often relate was by talking about a character in The Simpsons. So I always felt like a fish out of water. I got into these fancy schools, but I never felt like I really belonged. I mean, four years at Harvard was really interesting. I'm really grateful for the intellectual playground, but I showed up on day one and had massive imposter syndrome because of where I came from versus where like so many of the other kids that I went to college with came from, from these super prestigious boarding schools and a lot of family wealth and and the like. But the thing that sort of motivated me through all of this was I was always really enamored with work that made an impact, that made a difference. I was one of these 
dorky, specifically oriented little kids. Like I, Matt and I went canvassing and volunteering on political campaigns before we were old enough to vote because we thought that that kind of stuff was super important. And that's actually what brought me out to Silicon Valley was this idea that something was starting to happen in those early 2000s as this place was rebuilding from the wake of the original dot-com bust, where people were building technology that was going on to reach a crazy large number of people on the planet. And in its best illustrations, seemed to have a really positive effect on people. I mean, internet search with Google or in the early days of Facebook, this idea that we were going to bring people together over an online platform. So I moved out here to learn a little bit more about what was going on. And the rest has been sort of history over the last 15 to 16 years. I've bounced from one startup company to the other. I was at Square for a while and helped build that company's business overseas. I was really motivated to go and work there because I think Jack believed at his core around this mission of leveling the playing field and helping Mm. small business owners. Around the same time, Matt and I reconnected. We started dating and he was starting Nest, which was really motivated by this passion that he'd had since his childhood for addressing climate change. But the idea was maybe he could combine some of what he'd learned about building amazing products at Apple and create a really compelling climate change solution for people with the thermostat, which was also like a huge energy saving play. So in all of that, we made money because Square did very well, Nest did extremely well. And we found ourselves in this situation of having accumulated an an awful lot of capital that we weren't completely expecting. And we felt like we had a responsibility to do something with that capital. I think we understood a few things that in its best form, capital can be creative. You can use it as a very powerful tool to build things. And we understood that it was part of our responsibility as entrepreneurs to try and build the world that we wanted to see. So why not find a way to use our capital to create things in the world that we thought reflected our values and reflected a sort of better future for more people. I worked in venture for a couple of years after Square because I wanted to learn more about what investing looked like. I'd never been responsible for shepherding capital with the intention of building things and and generating a return, but learned pretty quickly that while there were many examples of things that we wanted to replicate, there were as many examples of things that we wanted to do intentionally very differently with Insight. So that's a little bit of the story. And I think um, that's amazing. That's really, really, you'd say I'm compelling. That's really compelling. And and even knowing you for so many years, I learned a lot in that, especially around your intentions and intents, you know, to come in. What I know now, again, you've been, you've made some very um, impactful investments in companies. I know that as a, as a team and insight, as an angel, as uh, the fun that you put together yeah. with Matt, insight. And then now I know like for the past few years, you've just been putting money behind what I would just call like policy and, and politics. Is that how you would describe it? Why was that so important to put a great deal of your wealth behind that? And why is it? Well, because I think one of the lessons that we learned in 2016 is that you can back really amazing companies and you can even fund super compelling nonprofits in pursuit of policies that you want changed in pursuit of the world that you want to create. So great examples, if we take climate, which is something that that Matt is very passionate about and guides a lot of our work at Insight, you could 
invest in amazing carbon removal companies, future nest type of companies. And you could fund nonprofits that are advocating for more public awareness of climate change and how important it is. But if you don't have the right people in elected office, all of that innovation hits a giant wall. Mm. I mean, you think about how far backwards we've moved on climate progress in the last couple of years, just by virtue of who's sitting in the White House and who's sitting in the federal legislature. So what we realized was you cannot be a change agent. You cannot be a funder looking to create a better world. Frankly, you, sh you shouldn't be a funder looking to create great companies if you don't also have a political strategy. Mm -hmm. We are all political in this moment. And so for us, it was an important part of the help that we were providing to our portfolio to start focusing on innovation and disruption in the political ecosystem. Hey, it's Arlen. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I told you it was great, right? Okay, so real quick, you know my mom loves her purple mattress. She told you at the top of this episode, but guess what? My brother also has a purple mattress. What? He loves it too. We're going to check in with him to see what he thinks. Hello? Alfred, can you tell me about the purple mattress you're on audio recording? I can tell you about it. It's the best mattress I ever laid on. <laughs> um, Why is that? Well, it's like, it's very soft. It shapes to every every inch of you. Uh-huh. When you sit, when you're laying down. So it's like, it's, it doesn't sink in. It's like, almost like just fits you. For, no matter what size you are, it just fits you. The next time you have to travel for a show or something, and you have to stay at a hotel bed, what's that going to be like, do you think? It's not going to be like a purple mattress. <laughs> now you, I know for sure this is going to make me want to go home. Even I'm, I'm having the best time. I'm like, man, I can't wait till I get to the house. I wonder if hotels should start using these mattresses then. Yes, the best, the top of the line hotels. <laughs> Every like this is so. It's such a good mattress. It makes it makes being home different. Wow! Literally. I thank you for that information. I can't wait to uh, try mine, and uh, I'll let you know what I think of it. Purple.com slash Arlen, A-R-L-A-N. Purple.com slash Arlen. You get a discount. Get $150 off a $1,500 or more purchase. That's purple.com slash Arlen. And what are some, ex what was an example or two of what, of that in action? So we funded and started a program in 2016 called The Arena that goes around America and helps new generation folks, so millennials, post-millennials, that are interested in learning how to run for office do that. Because I realized, oh my God, it's easier in 2020 to start a startup in America than it is to figure out how to be politically involved and run for office. And that seems really backwards. So let's fix that. So we kind of created this program that runs like an accelerator and training academies. And as a result of ARENA, we helped elect 10 new members of the U.S. House that are also incredibly diverse because ARENA has as part of its working assumption that the folks that it trains and helps run for office uh, over-index the general population in both gender and racial diversity. So of those 10 U.S. House members, you'll find folks that are a lot younger, a lot more of color, and a lot more women than, than mm -hmm. typical that are now legislators. They are passing laws in the U.S. House. 
is that something that's still going right now? I would imagine even more so, right? So how does someone sign up for that or even take a look at it if that sounded interesting to them? Because that sounds super interesting when you say it. You go to arena.run and there's everything that you need to get involved there. We've trained already 1,500 people so far in the last year and a half, and we're going to train another thousand plus people between now and the election. And uh, we're particularly focused on state legislative elections. So if you go to arena.run, you can get signed up to join a future training. You can also access this really cool thing that we built called Arena Careers, which is like LinkedIn for jobs in politics and progressive organizations. It's completely free. So you can get in there and create a profile and look for opportunities. So if you're not someone who's just yet ready to try the running part, you can get into the career and even maybe oh, yeah. change careers or have like a, a detour for a few years because this is so important. And can I ask this? I mean, I'm going to ask it. Yeah. If you are someone who is Republican or Libertarian, can you sign up for ARENA? You can. It's um, technically... We don't use the word Democrat in our materials. We talk about our values and having progressive values. So the community has a certain set of values around like inclusivity and around uh, working across the aisle and sort of bringing people together in leadership that I think is intended to be super inclusive. And by the way, that's something that I find tends to unite. It's one of the most disruptive elements of these new generation leaders that we're seeing right, come up around the country. They tend to identify less as big D Democrats or big R Republicans, and they talk a lot more about their values and everyday issues. Yeah. Um, I think that's a better kind of politics. It's focused less on division and more about the stuff that we want to get done together. Well, speaking of that, we'll just talk for a moment here because I had Pete Buttigieg on this podcast a few months ago. And you, what was the role that you had at that campaign? Because I know you were very passionate about what he was doing. And he seemed to me to be someone who, um, you know, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it because I'll, I'll just tell you how I feel in that moment. Um, but he seemed like someone who was, who could kind of appeal to a few different groups. But he had his troubles for sure when it came to race. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful that I got to meet him because I think I saw a little past that. But go ahead. What, what, what was it that drew you to him? And then what was your role there? Totally. And I think he really valued that conversation and that opportunity to to learn um, also. So Pete and I have known each other since our days in college. We were also Rhodes Scholars together. So some good formative years together. And because I've been doing so much work in the last couple of years focused on a new type of politics and supporting new generation leaders, I helped him build that presidential campaign. I stepped in really early and served as his campaign's finance chair, which is an interesting, it's almost like being a board member for somebody's mm campaign. You help mm -hmm. advise on strategy on, you know, I helped hire uh, members of the team. It was a lot for me. It was like being my, my insight investor job, but helping Pete and his team build the campaign out. And ultimately a lot of the responsibility for pulling together the finance operation for the campaign. So how we raised money to keep that campaign fueled mm -hmm. uh, and focused on winning supporters. And it was an incredible experience. I think for me, it really illustrated just how much appetite there is all over America, whether California or Iowa or other parts of the country for a new type of politics, for somebody that represents a fresh start, a new generation and uses a language deeply grounded in the things that we value as mm. human beings and members of a community versus a political party. Something that Pete's campaign did that I'm still really proud of is he was so effective at mobilizing so many people that 
never identified as political people. You know, they were getting called and activated to be engaged and involved for the very first time. Uh, I mean, one of the best fundraisers that we helped train on the campaign was like a college student who had never been involved before and never done, had been asked to participate in politics in that way and got so deeply involved that he was incredibly successful at raising grassroots contributions for the campaign. Yeah. Have you heard the song by Yellow Pain, the rapper who has yellow hair? We had him on this show, too. I, I was able to get him uh, to meet Stacey Abrams and do a That's lot of fair. stuff around that. I sent uh, that video to Pete, like, as soon as you posted it, too. Oh, really? Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, because it, it just kind of reminds you again, going back to how important it is to be in the statewide elections and to think about everything, everything, you know, that can be elected. So arena.run sounds like the play. It's interesting. It sounds interesting. Maybe I'll check it out. <laughs> um, is it someone, do you have to be kind of doing this full time? It can be just kind no, of on the side, you right? You can do part-time too. You can part-time. do as much or as little as you want oh. um, to get involved there. We have a lot of folks that come through the trainings and now the trainings are all online. So you just kind of spend a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, learning about how to work on a campaign. And then you can decide, like, do you want to volunteer on a campaign or are you looking yeah. for a full-time opportunity? Yeah. I'd love to see you too. I don't know if you've already done this, but I'd love to see you connect with Pod Save America and Pod Save the People on the stuff that they do, uh, both in politics and police brutality and all sorts of things there. I think the two forces would be really interesting together. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Let's try to make it happen. Let's call it. I'm gonna call up Duray. We'll make it happen. <laughs> so going into that, the current climate. Yeah. First of all, your portfolio is super diverse and your deal yeah. flow. I think the most important part, right? The deal flow is diverse. Can I, can you tell me Swati, how on earth do you have a diverse portfolio when, <laughs> when it's so hard to find black and brown people who are starting companies? This is in many ways the question of one of the big questions of the moment that I wish we could see the venture community grapple with more in this moment, Arlen, because I mean, I just want to tie it back to stories that we were sharing at the beginning of our conversation where, you know, you rewind to four or five years ago when you were starting backstage and having those conversations. And I was a partner at one of these established firms. A f- common conversation around this theme is there aren't enough founders out there. We just aren't seeing them. If you can help us look at more deals, then surely we'll pick more of them and that will solve the problem. It's like trying to put a Band-Aid on a much, much bigger wound in a lot of ways, because I think for me, this is the connection in the work that I do in the political lens, in the work that I do in the nonprofit lens, and the investments that we make in companies. It comes down to values. And what do you as an investor or as a fund and a firm value? And are you putting that out into the world? I think that at Insight, we are really fortunate to be in a position to have quite a bit of diversity and representation in the opportunities that we consider because Matt and I are constantly putting out into the world with our team that we value these things, that we value looking at all different kinds of companies, whether you are building a robotic aquaculture company, a financial services business, a robotics related company or not, the scope of problem that we consider is vast. And so too, that the scope of lived experience and the founders that we back is vast. We talk a lot about also the values of our founding teams, you know, around our team, we say, 
almost weekly, we have a no assholes policy. We want to proactively back good people, people that we feel good about helping to succeed because that has ramifications in the world beyond. And I think we're seeing that both good and bad at the current moment. If more venture funds focused on articulating their values and in their their public presence, illustrating those values, I think it could help unlock these quote unquote pipeline problems. This isn't just a mechanical issue of seeing more companies that back black and brown founders are building. It's about whether or not you as an investor are showing and talking about the kind of world that you want to create and the kinds of people that you want to back. That's what motivates a founder to even want to share an opportunity with you. Howdy. It's Arlen. I'm surprised I haven't said howdy yet on this podcast. I don't think I have just yet from Texas. Why wouldn't I? Hey, so are you an accredited investor? You know you're an accredited investor if you are in the United States and you make $200,000 or more on your own or $300,000 or more with a spouse, or you have a net worth of a million dollars or more, not including your main home. That's an accredited investor for the most part. There's a lot of other ways you could be an accredited investor, but that's the main one. If you're interested, you said, hey, I've been listening to Arlen's podcast. I love this episode. I wish I could invest alongside Arlen in some of her deals. Well, guess what? Guess what? We aim to please. I don't know who we are, but we aim to please. Go to backstagecrowd.com, backstagecrowd.com, and you can sign up right now to be part of our syndicate. So how this works really quickly is I have a deal I want to get in. I'll put in some money or we'll pull money from a fund of ours at Backstage and then we'll invite everyone who wants to take a look at the deal, who is an accredited investor, to take a look at the deal. You'll put in something like 2000 or 4000 or 10000 or 5000 whatever you want to put into that specific deal if you want to. And then up to 250 people can legally do that for one deal. And then we hand over that full amount, including your part and our part, put them together, hand over a deal. We're going to be doing 250K to a million dollars each once or so per month. You go to Backstage Crowd, you sign up, you look at the deal, you decide, yeah, I want to do that or no, that's not for me. And you're good to go. And you're in the deal with us. It's pretty cool. If you want to learn more and you want to learn a lot more, There is an episode that I just recorded and I just put up called uh, introducingbackstagecrowd.com. You can find it in this podcast series. It gives you all the information you need. And I can't wait to see you there. Just go sign up. Go sign up. Cool. When you think about these Midas GPs at most of these big billion dollar plus funds, do you think they have those values? Do you think they want that life? Because to me, it doesn't feel like they do. Yeah, listen, I agree with you. I also think that they've never been asked or required to articulate those values before. And in some ways, the world is shifting. I mean, this is not the venture ecosystem of even 15 years ago where there were a much smaller handful of funds. Venture has democratized. There are now thousands of venture funds. It's more of a founder's market than it is an investor's market. And what I think clever founders are able to do, savvy founders, is to show up and actually use the market to their advantage. You should think about what your values are as a founder and proactively look for investors that reflect that. And trust me, it'll show up. That's why we care about diversity metrics in a portfolio. That's why we care about whether or not you have diversity in your GP pool 
and your LP pool, frankly, uh, as a fund and a firm. This isn't just a box checking exercise of like, hey, look, we're diverse. We hired our token female founder. I mean, I and I've seen the inner workings of that. I was privy to so many conversations at cocktail parties and the like with, you know, senior venture firm partners who would say things like, well, we're really focused on the, the women diversity thing. We're hiring a female partner. We're not really ready to tackle the race thing yet. It's too complicated. Let's just deal with the gender, the gender diversity challenge first. Or, well, you know, we looked at our numbers and it's definitely just a pipeline problem, like, like a mechanical issue. If we can just increase the number of black and brown founded companies or women founded companies that pitch us, or one of the cake toppers that I remember is, well, we think it's because women just don't know or founders of color just don't know how to pitch their companies. Do you think, should we maybe have office hours to teach these founders how to present better and share their ideas better? There hasn't been this introspection of what is wrong with me and the system that I'm creating that's perpetuating these huge misses. To me, it's a big disappointment. You know, when venture was starting 50 or 60 years ago, the folks that were founding it, the intention was always that we were supposed to be using capital to solve hard problems, to create things. This is what made us different than other forms of investment. So if our work is not incorporating values, then inherently the world that we're creating also isn't going to reflect those values. And that's a big problem. I think we're overlooking the bigger responsibility that venture as a tool is supposed to have for the world. Mm, exactly. I mean, it, it's its own asset class for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's outside of private equity as a sub subclass for a reason. It's supposed to be doing these things and it's not necessarily... I know. Rest- and these days, I think if you look at some of the most blue chip venture funds, you almost can't see the difference except right. for maybe, you know, some, the mechanical things around check size uh, and series of investment participated in. But the types of companies that are being supported, the kinds of creative teams that are being backed, it's becoming less and less apparent that we are intended to be something different and do something harder. What do you think the role of journalism and media plays right now in all of this? Huge. And I think this is also a missed opportunity. One of the challenges that we probably run into is a lot of the folks that do the storytelling on venture investing and frankly, building tech companies have never done that work. And so there is a degree of simplicity in the reporting and the storytelling side of this that maybe doesn't do justice to some of the deeper, more complicated underlying problems. I found that when uh, Gimlet did my six-part series a couple of years ago, what happened? I loved their, I mean, they, they're second to none in their narrative and in their production and in their, the heart of it. But the simple kind of mechanics of venture and the juxtaposition of what I was doing against another, all other venture was just not there. So if you're listening for the first time, you don't know that I come across as a very different thing than I. Than That's I right. Yeah. And what do we do to so- go towards solving that? Is, it, is there any simple first steps, do you think? I don't know. I've always thought it would be interesting if somebody, if, if somebody wanted to work together to create like a venture in tech 101 series, like almost invite the folks that cover these sectors to an insider's view, you know, a space where you could really let loose without attribution and sort of confidentially just point out some of the bigger stories or the sort of missed opportunities in the covering of of our industry. Like what are the 
types of things that you've learned in your work at Backstage that you think raises important questions for everybody else that practices? That's such an amazing idea. I know now for a fact, because they reached out to me recently, that a lot of journalists listen to this podcast. And I imagine when you say that someone, you really mean someone because you're not going to be able to do everything, right? You would be invited to something like that, but you're not going to be able to to build that up. So that sounds awesome. I think there's like a pop-up or a pilot that can be made of that, which is simply an off-the-record Zoom conversation or something that is even more protected. I don't know what that would be, but something (laughs) like that. I love that idea. And now that I have an online course, uh, which a lot of people watching this video exclusively will be part of, that seems like easier and easier thing to do, even if it's just a video of, of... people giving their different takes on things. Completely. That's yeah. a good idea. That's interesting. I love that. What, where are you putting your, as we start to wrap up, where are you putting most of your effort now? If you had to think, okay, the next decade or so, yeah, this is where I'm going all in, or is it spread across different places? Well, it's definitely spread across nonprofit, for-profit companies and political work. But I think my focus increasingly is on building systems, building tables for talented change makers who are very rooted in values, in good, inclusive, aspirational values for the world. And that's important. I mean, it's it's part of our experience. I mean, you and I have spoken about how Backstage really embodies this. It's part of the experience at Insight. Well, let me rephrase this. In my experience, one of the most effective ways to drive change is to build your own table and to sort of illustrate through doing that, that change is possible and that you can still generate returns or have impact or get elected to office using a different model. That can be a lot more effective than trying to make change from inside of a big established organization or industry. I think that was my experience in venture. We ultimately decided to start Insight because I realized, wow, the kind of dramatic lasting change that we need is more likely to come by setting up a new model and showing that it can succeed versus trying to be one of the only young brown women in a room over and over and over again and to carry this really heavy burden of trying to change everybody around me Mm. to build the sort of world that we need. So that's going to be my approach is figuring out what that looks like in the political realm, in some of these nonprofit realms that we look in, uh, that we look at, and we're already underway doing that with our companies. And you do that by way of finding and sourcing these kind of visionary people and change makers and catalyzing them. Well, thank you. I I am taking myself out of it, but in catalyzing them and giving them, propping them up to do the thing, because the, the people who are doing such institutional, same old, same old traditional, they're propped up with immeasurable amounts of resources. Yep. So if you want to make these big changes, at least it has to start somewhere, which I think is so exciting and so interesting. I love the arena.run. I hope that a lot of people listening will sign up for it and they may not have known where to go, but now they know where to go if they want to run for office, any level. And I just appreciate everything that you do. Is there anything else or any particular organization or company that you have backed recently that you know that our listeners would love to hear? 
Well, I think a really great thing is if folks could just tune in to, uh, to what we're doing at insight.org. You can sign up for the email list or just follow us on social media. And we're constantly sharing some of the really talented founders that we're supporting. Uh, we recently made an investment in a really cool company with an amazingly talented founder, for example, called Zero. It's a plastics-free sustainability play, but the amazing service is at-home grocery delivery. And the founder, Zuleika, is just amazing. And we're probably investing in a new company every two to four weeks. Oftentimes, there are things that we hear about from really great folks like you, Arlen, who are in our network. But if people tune into it, to insight.org, it's a great place to hear about what we're doing and what we're learning about the world and where there are opportunities to make impact. For the investors who are listening, especially those with high net worths, where do they go? Is there an interest in working together? How do they do that? Does it go right to the same site and, and contact you that way? Yeah, I'm Swathi at insight.org. We're always looking to find other folks that share our values to work with. And we find that our founders really appreciate having a supportive community of investors. It makes their life easier and helps them get more consistent support and advice from their network of investors. So always looking for new folks to co-invest with. And we often do participate in syndicates with other investors that we know are looking to create a similar type of world and also generate returns in the, in the process. And I'll, I'll end this by saying, I just love this conversation. I've just loved it. But I'll end this by saying, if you are in high school now or just graduating high school, be you, because it turns out that just being yourself, you have two examples right here, <laughs> just being yourself in high school can lead to so much, to so much. And I know there are a lot of high schoolers that are graduating right now. They're listening. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Arlen, thank you for everything that you do and just providing this amazing example of just sticking to your guns and proving that it's, it's a worthwhile undertaking. Thank you. Appreciate that. Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen was here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N was here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. This episode has been brought to you by purple.com for all your mattress needs. You heard Mrs. Sims. You heard my mom earlier in this episode. She said, you got to go get it. So you got to go get it. Check out their sheets, their duvets, their pillows. And if you are really needing a more comfortable sleep, get that mattress delivered. Okay? <laughs> and then tell my mom what you thought. Your First Million is produced by Anna Aichenoa, executive producer Arlen Hamilton, associate producer Chacho Valadez. 